You are listening to Master Coaching with Ajit, a podcast that inspires coaches to impact lives of their clients more meaningfully. I am Coach Ajit, and I'm known for coaching high performers, entrepreneurs, and leaders. I'm also a serial entrepreneur and author of many books. On this podcast, I am answering your burning questions. I'm also demonstrating and deconstructing behind-the-scenes coaching sessions. Ajit, I am so excited to pick your brain on all things money. So I want to ask you this. What is your personal definition of wealth and your philosophy on generating wealth? So through the course of my life, I have lived many different versions of wealth as of now. And it's not that I've lived my entire life, but to the amount of life that I've lived. So from the version where you're basically sharing a household with 23 people, and then living in that confined space, but always having enough resources to kind of take care of yourself, right? Of course, taken care of by my parents, not necessarily by me, but to be able to experience that and still feel that I never really felt that we were poor, but we definitely were not affluent and we weren't abundant. Not everything came easy. At the same point in time, I've also experienced times when I made my first good amount of money where I bought my first car in my entire immediate family. So between my father and my brother and everything, I was the first person who bought a car because I could create that wealth at a very, very quick pace for myself. I was like 24 or something like that. And I was like, all right, I for India, I just started working basically two years before that. So I was like, wow, I've built wealth in that really small sense while living with my parents back in India. And then to be able to currently the kind of wealth that I get to live or get to enjoy, which is wealth in sense of... Uh, actual abundance of money, but also in sense of wealth of relationships that I have, wealth of experiences that I get to nurture, the wealth of a day-to-day parenting experiences, love experiences, experiences that I get to have with friends and everything. So I've had different variations of wealth and I think or different understanding of wealth at different times of my life. But I think anybody starts to really recognize what true wealth is, is when you have unlock the first level of wealth, and that is to have money. Because that's the first understanding of wealth is to say, do I have enough money that I can live comfortably? That's probably version one uh, or stage one. And stage two probably has enough money that I can take care of. And that might be immediate family and friends. And then there is the next level of wealth, which is I have enough money that I can do what I want to do. Right, Because there's stages as well. While we can all say, yes, you can do whatever you want to do, a lot of times when you're strapped for cash, you don't actually get to do what you truly want to do. Mm-hmm. And the reason is pretty straightforward. That's how I grew up in India. Like I couldn't just do whatever I wanted to do. I couldn't quit anything. I wouldn't have money for rent or money to get food even for that matter. So there's a different stages of wealth that you get to experience. And your understanding of wealth truly expands only when you go from level one to level two to level three to level four to level five. Mm -hmm. And I think the ultimate level, I I hope, I don't know what other understanding of it have in time, but the ultimate level of the level that I'm experiencing right now of wealth is the holistic nature of wealth Mm -hmm. and holistic nature of even money in context of wealth is money is meaningless if it doesn't do what it needs to do. And that is to help you live the greatest version of your life and the best version, the favorite version of your life. And that may include a lot of abundance of time, or it may mean no abundance of time because that's how you like your life. I don't think we should necessarily, I think it is unfair to define one version of wealth because wealth looks different for everyone. Mm -hmm. 
But the aspiration or the place where you get to is I get to do what I want to do. And I am able to create what I want to create. Because that's really where you enjoy the wealth is when you're creating what you want to create, when you're creating things that are more meaningful to you. And that may involve creative art like painting, or it may involve things like creating businesses, or it may involve traveling around the world. But it's a different creativity and expressed differently for the person. So the definition of true wealth, I think, changes from person to person based on what their ultimate desires are. So I love your definition and specifically with the different stages of wealth. The one thing that I really got from what you just said is wealth is not just money. It's wealth in friendships, wealth in love, wealth in opportunities, you know, and it's really just about looking at, well, what do I have? So Mm -hmm. I have a question for the person who may be listening to this and let's say they have a wealth of friendships. They Mm -hmm. have a wealth of uh, family and love, but they're struggling with their financial wealth, right? Mm -hmm. What, would you say to them as far as your approach and your philosophy on generating financial wealth? So if you've already developed wealth of relationships or love, mm-hmm. you have the model to build wealth. You've just not applied it towards money. Mm-hmm. Here's what I mean. So when you have wealth of relationships or wealth of friendships, let's say, because it's an easier example to play with. So when you have wealth of friendships, you probably started somewhere. Mm-hmm. You said, I'm going to make one really good friend right? Or you had one really good friend, Mm -hmm. right? And then you made that intentional effort to build that friendship further and further. Mm -hmm. And because of your desire for abundance of friendship and wealth of friendships, you said, I want to have more friends like this one friend. Mm -hmm. And then you reached out to the next friend and the next friend, or you made the next friend and the next friend because of this one friend. That's literally how money is made as well. Mm -hmm. It's no different. You find one way of making money and you put conscious effort towards it. Once you made the money, you will find that there's other ways to make money on top and leverage from that money. Anybody that is a successful business owner has no other science and logic but that. Mm-hmm. Is that we take one idea and we say, wow, I've gotten really good at this. How can I leverage this in as many different ways as possible? And you use it in as many different ways as possible. And you create wealth compounding on top of each other. It's like once you have 10 friends, you have compounded the wealth of friendships. Or when you have invested 10 years in a friendship... That friendship goes at a level and the depth it goes at, even if you haven't spoken to that person for a year. There's some friends of mine that we've been friends for 20 years now, right? So we became friends, we were in high school and we've been friends ever since. And sometimes it will be months that we wouldn't get a chance to talk because we just are so, like we are internationally located. We all all love to travel. We all have really full lives. But when we meet, we don't start from zero, we still start from the compounded average of 20 years, mm. right? So we can go deep really, really fast. And that's kind of how wealth and money, wealth and friendship, all of the wealth is always created like that. The difference is that intentionality and the amount of return that you get for anything that you start is different. Intentionality towards money is always lower mm-hmm. because fears are always higher. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of resistances. People have beliefs around it. Oh, you shouldn't have more than this amount of money because my friend's don't have this money and I don't want to be outcasted by them, which never really happens. It's all stories we tell. But there are reasons for that is we never put intention behind money and say, okay, I'm going to be rich. I'm going to be wealthy. I'm going to make money. And I'll be real about it. I'm going to put effort towards it. And then secondly, we don't compound money. We think about money as a thing that helps us serve a particular purpose in that moment. Mm -hmm. And that's why we operate with money more like transaction. I made $10, I'm going to spend nine out of Mm it. Usually 11, actually, some in some cases, most American cases, you make 10, you spend 11 because thanks to credit, credit cards, mm-hmm. right? 
But if you do that, you, it's like if you built a relationship or a friendship like that, where you said, hey, you're going to take me out for dinner 11 times. I'll take you out 10 times. Soon your friends going to realize that they're in a not a very good relationship, right? It's the same. Or just think about it from that context, right? You take more than you give in a relationship. Mm-hmm. The friendship's not going to really nurture over 10 years. The person at some point will be like, this is a little bit crazy as a friendship, mm-hmm. right? So that's kind of how money works as well. You can't not be intentional about it. You cannot not compound it. You need to compound that relationship with money. And the money or wealth will compound on top of itself as well. It's no different. You know, the key thing that I got from what you said is relationship. We're in relationship to everything, right? Just like you compared money to friendship. We're not going to be transactional in a friendship. So we can't be that way with money either. So I really just love this approach because it really is about looking at our relationship to money. How are you actually in a relationship with money, right? Are you honoring it? Are you cherishing it? Is it reciprocal? And another thing that I heard you say just about, you know, with wealth of friendships and wealth of connections, I think oftentimes, and I'd love to get your take on this, people feel like, oh, I don't have money, but it's like, wait, but if you have friendships, you can also let them know, hey, I'm in business. This is what I offer. And you can utilize those friendships to help unlock some of the money issues that you have. What do you think about that? Like using what you do have and Mm -hmm. utilizing what you do have to open up other areas of your life that may feel limited. Absolutely. And if they're good friends of yours, and Mm -hmm. not every friend can be approached that way, but if they're a good friend of yours, they would be more than willing to help. For that matter, they will be more than willing to listen, support in any way possible. Most of my very deep friendships do turn up into some kind of work relationship at some point, either short term or long term. And I don't see them as that's why you have friendships, but it's because if you really enjoy working on what you really work on, right? And if you like creating what you create, there's a big possibility that you want to, you know, do it with people that you have fun with. Who do you have fun with if not friends? Right. Right. So so it's kind of like it works that way. It's way interesting how relationships and money relationships really work. So you can always lean into friendships and friendships, good friendships will go, okay, how can I support you? For that matter, sometimes you won't have to ask. The friend will go, hey, I know you do this kind of stuff. Do you think you can help me with this? Mm -hmm. And they will bring you on. You don't even have to ask. But sometimes they don't even know. Like, for example, there are certain friends of mine. We have to check in with them because while I want to offer, I don't want them to feel like, I'm trying to offer because I think they're not doing well. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, I see a skill in you. Mm -hmm. And I think this is utilizable in my context or in my business or one of my businesses. Would you be open to doing this? And sometimes they say yes. Sometimes they go, oh, no, I don't know. I don't want to put pressure on you or I don't want to use my friendship. Mm -hmm. And I don't don't think friendships work that way. Like friendships are more dynamic than feeling like somebody's taking from you. If that's the friendship, then we are not friends, really. Then we are acquaintances. We know of each other. We don't actually care for each other. But if we do care for each other, I think, and that's at least my understanding of friendship, is if I care for you, I want to do what I can to support. And even if it's not support, sometimes to be able to support myself, right? right? Business is more fun when done with friends. There's a stand-up comedian in America, I'm sure you know, Kevin Hart. Mm -hmm, Love him. Uh, And I love his philosophy, I don't know if it's philosophy, but I heard his story somewhere where all the friends he grew up with, he made it a point that as he went for the ride, as he became successful, he brought all of them along. And sometimes they were very qualified people, so they got really good things they were brought along for. And sometimes they were their body, his bodyguard. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's true that it was bodyguard, but he was like, it's not that everybody has the same capability and would end up at the same level of success. 
somebody does know how to produce a show or learned how to produce a show, so they produce a show, they make a lot more money than somebody who said, I don't want to learn that. I'd rather just guard you and be around with you. I just want to, you know, hang out with you. It's like, great. So you're going to be a bodyguard and you'll get paid like that. But still, you will be more successful than you were if you were just by yourself. Right. Right. Because he also came from circumstances that were not very wealthy, very poor and so yeah. on and so, so forth. And what I found is that's a brilliant philosophy. It's kind of annoying to me when people say, when you grow, you must let your friends go. Yes. I don't believe in that. I'm not saying every friend will come along for the ride. That's not what happens, right? But at the same point of time, a lot of the times, your friends do want to come along for the ride. They do want to see how they can be in partnership with you, be in growth-centeredness with you. And they are growth-centered people. They just haven't found what you found. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times that finding or the thing that you found is knowing, knowing something to be true. You can't explain it. You cannot decipher it. It's not a step-by-step program. It's just innate knowing that you have that gives you drive, that gives you clarity, that gives you focus, that gives you uh, intuition of what will work that nobody else can see Mm -hmm. when you're actually working on it. Like I have always worked on ideas that around me, people were like, what the hell are you doing? It makes no sense whatsoever, including my parents. Nobody could understand for the first even 10 years of my career as to why the hell would I chase things that make no sense to them. And of course, now it all makes sense to them. Right. Now it's like, oh, of course. Of course, we always knew. But no, we, we did We always supported you. Yeah, we <laughs> always supported that. My parents did. Yeah. But I'm talking about certain other people yeah. that were like, oh, wow. You, you know, oh, now we get it. Now we get it. Because now they see the trend in global uh, system finally catching on to the trend that I caught on to much earlier. But that's what you have to do if you want to get to a place. You have to catch on to things that will happen. You have to be predictive about it. But that's not step by step. That's intuitive. That's just you go, I think this is going to be the future. I'm going to chase it. And I could be wrong. And then fine, (laughs) that would take me to a different place of life. And I could be right, like I am in a lot of cases. And because of that, the friends that still connected with me, wanted to grow with me, are very successful in their own right, more successful than they would be if they were doing it all by themselves. It is not to take credit from their work. It is to know that that's how real friendships are. I say this, wealth is a team sport. Yeah, Wealth is not an individual sport. I can tell a whole romanticized story and say how I'm great and I can make all the money. But honestly, money making is a team sport. You need a really good person that gives you good financial advice. When I moved to the United States, the structure of taxation, the structure of wealth building is completely different to how it is in India. And after that, I was global. So for a big chunk of my time, I was not a resident of any of these countries. So I was having a completely different playbook. So when I moved to US, I needed somebody who would be a guide here locally who can accelerate 10 years of my experience into two years of my experience. Mm -hmm. And that happened, which is why I was able to build wealth incredibly fast in US. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I would take the time because I would be like, oh, I don't even know how to work the tax code or what's okay, what's not okay, where to invest, how much to invest, how to really predict what your cash flow is going to be based on the US legal system because to work with the legal system, you can't do illegal shit. So, you know, it's it's a team sport. You're always looking for people that will partner up with you and that includes friends, that includes people that will be your mentors, people who will be your guides, people who will be your coaches. Mm -hmm. And you have to think about it that way. And when you think about it that way, you realize that you become a set of groupthink of money mindset instead of your money mindset. Mm. You need your money mindset, of course, to be able to create personal wealth. And at the same point of time, when you are working as a group, your mindset elevates faster. 
because you're not limited to your thinking potential or your energetic potential. You're operating from a combined potential of everybody. Mm-hmm. And when you work from a combined potential of everybody, everybody elevates faster. I love that. Creating wealth is truly teamwork. It takes a team to create that wealth. And I just loved your multi-layered answer to this question because it wasn't just about, here's how you make a buck. It's really about wealth of friendships, wealth of mindset, allowing yourself to be supported. Just all the nuances of your answer just screamed wealth, but not the way that we think like, you know, boiling down to dollars and cents. It really is about your approach, your mindset. And so I know many people leaving corporate right now, for example, they grapple with the idea of letting go of their pension or their equity and stepping into entrepreneurship with no built-in retirement plans, right? I'd love to hear from you, how does your approach to wealth building help you balance long-term assets with short-term risk moves? Because you've taken quite a few risks. Yes. Yeah, so... I think, again, it depends on the goals that you have and the stage of life you're at. And that's why it's very important to kind of everything that you hear as advice, always filter it through where I am at in my life, right? So when I was a single man, my wealth investments were high-risk investments because I didn't care. I was younger. I maintained a very good policy around saving when I was in career because I I knew that's all the money I was getting. It was $100 if you're getting, that's all you're getting. So either you can spend all 100 or you can keep 40 and then spend 60, right? That's just what you had because that's how careers are. It's not entrepreneurial where I could move my income up and down based on where I am in my journey or at least have some sense of control on it. At least sense-wise, I feel like I have control on it even if I don't. But at least it's a little bit more variable and uh, there's no upper ceiling per se. So what would happen at that time is I would go, all right, I'm making 100. I'm going to save 40 or 50 sometimes, at least 20 every single month, even if it was very little that I was making, and the rest I can spend. And what that would do is at that time, I would put them into high-risk investments Mm -hmm. that I knew even if I lost the money, I was just starting my career. So it didn't matter if I lost all the money, mm-hmm. right? Because I could always rebuild it, right? Because I was in my still early 20s or mid-20s when I was doing this, right? And then once I decided we wanted to have kids, which is about five years ago, six years ago, my investment strategy started to change, wow. right? My investment strategy became, okay, I'm going to save a bunch and I'm going to put a little bit towards low risk and a little bit towards high risk. Mm-hmm. Still a little bit high risk, because both of us are still really young. Like Nita is 40, I'm 39 this year. We're pretty young to be able to play this game, right? So we said, all right, great. So let's do a little bit high risk and a little bit low risk. So when we lose, we do lose. But at the same point in time, there are some low risk investments like real estate, right? It's like it's low risk. You'll still end up making this much over 10 years, 20 years of time frame unless something dramatically bad happens, which is unlikely. But that's what is the case. It's like, okay, that's where we are right now. Now, let's say if I was somebody who was in my 50s or 60s, where you're like, all right, I'm in 50s or 50s is still fine, maybe 60s, is where you're like, I'm looking at retirement in five to 10 years from now. And then I want to figure out what I want to do. And I'm, I want to leave corporate now because I want to start my alternative career right away right? Let's say hypothetically, I would have a completely different investment strategy because you want to be low risk at that point because you are looking at, let's say you start your career at 60, let's say you have a 20 year run because let's say you're a healthy person. That's why you're taking the risk at this age. You're going to do your career till like 80, let's say for 20 years, especially as a coach, you totally can because it's not a, you know, it's not high activity sport. It's more mental sports. So the time you keep sharp, you're fine. Yeah. So you can do up till 80, even 85. So so let's say you're doing until 80, you're being a coach, you have 20 years, you want to keep a low risk and high savings investments. Usually at 60, your kids are out of the house, you're probably just by yourself and your partner, which means you can keep your expenses low, you can make your income high, 
keep the investments as much as low risk, but over 10 years or 20 years, so you can yield a little good chunk of change by the end of 20 years, you're good, mm-hmm. right? So it really depends on where you are in your career. If you have young kids, you don't want to do high-risk investments. You want to do low-risk investments because you're thinking about them also for a hot minute. So if you're in corporate and let's say you were let go off because that's what's happening a lot, right? And if you're in tech, usually that's where it's happening to you, right? So you're in tech, you were... You have, you've been let go. You might have had some wasted money that is now gone. You might have a small sense of savings that you might have or no savings whatsoever. So first of all, my first recommendation always is go back into a job. Mm-hmm. Find a job first before you start a career. It sounds like terrible advice for somebody who's just starting a career, mm-hmm. but it's actually something that will help you start a career, alternate career much easily. You see, today we live in a gig economy. You can always get gigs that does not require you to show up nine to five. You can work for a few hours, deliver the task and keep moving further into creating whatever business you want to create on the side. You can work remotely, right? A lot of my employees right now, not a lot, at least a few of them have the job that they do with me and we are completely open with each other. And I know that they do their own business on the side and they consult and they coach and they do this and they do that. And I'm fine with that. So what happens because of that is I'm still getting my value from the person. I don't need them to work eight hours because that's not the job that they're hired for. They have to still deliver to the highest level and they can in five hours or four hours. And the remaining, they can start building their business. So get into a gig that allows you that kind of flexibility if possible. If not possible, then get into a gig. Go to the office, it's fine. Start building your business on the side and get the basics in place. Get a methodology in place. Get your first two, three clients in place so you have a proof of concept. And then say, I'm going to quit my job. And then go into actual career of no ceiling of the upper limit of your own business. So if you want to build wealth, you also want to think long-term. You don't want to think something that is very immediate. You don't want to think, okay, how do I pay rent this month? Mm-hmm. And I would do things for immediate gratification. Let me just get a new laptop because, you know, the new cool man M2 laptop of Apple has come out. Don't do that, right? Uh, do long-term plays. Here's an exercise, actually. It's a super simple exercise that would totally help, right? Let's say you were to save 20% of whatever you make right now. Right. Hypothetically, let's assume the average person that listening to this makes about five thousand dollars a month. Right. Twenty percent of that amounts to about a thousand bucks a month. Right. If you save and let's say this five thousand dollars as you make, you think, oh, crap, I don't save anything after everything that I do. Right. Okay. I say I will take away 20 percent of that before you even make your first expense of the month. Right. So you only have four thousand dollars left. Right. Thousand is saved. I guarantee that within this month, you will figure out how to still live your greatest life in $4,000, 100%. You will only cut out things that anyways were meaningless to you, but you were doing it just because you had the money. They were not actually valuable to you most of the time. Most of the time, that's true, right? But now you start saving 1000 bucks a month. In six months, you have $6,000 saved. In three years, even if you did no compound interest, you have $36,000 saved. $36,000 is worth five or six months of your salary. Wow. Right? So, Sorry, six to seven months of your salary. Now, six to seven months of your salary saved up three years from now gives you six to seven months of you saying, I quit my job, I have six months to start my business. If you think about it that way, right? You don't have to wait three years for it. What I'm saying is that's what compounding income or saving a little bit does over time, right? You now have a sense of safety and security so your ability to take real-time risk actually goes up. Because when you don't have sense of safety and security, you tend to not want to do things or you do things out of anxiety and immediate gains 
versus actually building something. So I, I'm loving these practical strategies. I want to segue into more of the mindset, which I know you're mm-hmm. a master at. Let's say we have a new coach, right? Who's listening to this right now and they're obsessed with hitting a certain income level. I'm sure you hear that all the time. Mm-hmm. They want to hit a certain income level to feel safe or to feel validated or worthy. What do you think is the common money story that they're having? So most common money stories that we've seen, especially with coaches, are, they tend to be that uh, money is not available to me. Mm-hmm. usually because of their background, because of something that might have happened in their life, because of how parenting was done in the previous generation, how vocal the conversation around money used to be at that time, uh, especially without considering if kids are on or not. Like now we are more aware, more conscious. We know they're getting programmed. Mm-hmm. So every parent that has read any decent parenting book is kind of like, all right, even if I want to have a debate about this with my partner, I'm going to do it in private, right? Mm-hmm. They're not going to do it in front of kids. That wasn't the case for the last generation, right? No. <laughs> so, so if you are... We heard everything. Yeah. We if you are 25 and over or maybe 30 and over, your parents talked about money in front of you and lack of it as well in front of you, which means that a lot of things and beliefs that you created were created unconsciously. Like you may have a visceral memory of it or you may have no memory of it, but it's implanted in you. So you're always operating from a place of, I don't have, there is not enough money in the world or... Another one that has definitely happened in my house a lot, and again, it was unconscious to them and very much available to me until I proved it otherwise, which was money is for rich people. No, sorry, money is for evil people. Oh, evil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Rich people are evil, basically. Oh, they have money, they're evil people. That's a narrative even if you read media right now. Oh, all the billionaires, they're evil. Right? They're out to get you. They'll run a sacred, you know, a secret sanctum, and they, they do all this stuff, and... It's because it's a great story to tell, right? The rich billionaire must be an evil person, even if they're trying to change the world, right? There's no way that they are rich and actually a good person or a decent person. It's not possible, right? And that's not true. (laughs) That's not true. If you actually sit down with a rich person, not in a public setting, but in a private setting, they're actually the nicest people you will meet. They're really, really nice. The only thing that happens is, and that's I don't I understand why it happens when you're in a public setting with them versus a private setting with them, because when they're in a public setting, money makes people defensive. Because what happens with most of the people when they have money is a lot of people want money from them hmm. as investments, as charity, as this, as that. And they are bombarded by it, especially if people know somebody has money. Right? And nothing wrong with people who are asking, but the person who's receiving a thousand requests a day feels everybody's out to get them. Wow. Right? Think about if somebody was out to get you all the time. How would you feel in a public setting? You would think, oh no, that's, you know, you become an asshole so that nobody can take advantage of you because people have taken advantage of you or it feels like people want to take advantage of you even if they're only asking for help and you anyways want to help but don't know how and where and who, right? So what tends to happen because of that is they act like assholes. They act like people who are, you know, uh, who are snarky, who would say shit to people on their face, who will tell people to get out. Just basically their wounds start projecting into a public space because that's what they've experienced most in their life. Like that's what th- they have felt attacked so much that they feel like they must attack in public. So in public setting, they're a little bit like assholes. I get it. And I understand a little bit of it. Don't agree with it, of course, because I think we can all do better. But at the same point in time, there is some sense of understanding to it. But if you sit down with a multimillionaire, a billionaire, personally, privately, mm-hmm. and you have a conversation with them, they always want to give you 
They always want to help you. They want to see if they can help you make more money because they know the benefit of having more money. They want to be supportive if they can. They want to answer your questions. They're actually not mean at all. Yeah. They're actually very nice people. And I've met billionaires and I've met many multi-millionaires. Mm-hmm. And in a private setting, when they don't have the facade on, amazing people. When they have the facade on, the same person acts differently. It's so ridiculous. It's like, mm-hmm. I know you. We have sat down. I know you're a nice person. But right now, because you're in a public setting, you're treating everybody like shit. So how does someone even begin to develop the self-awareness around their money stories? And really, I mean, so here's the thing. I always say new level, new devil, right? Even mm-hmm. you can keep getting bigger and bigger, make more money, and there's going to be stuff that comes up. Mm-hmm. And if you've been in this work of, you know, self-development, personal growth, becoming aware, okay, maybe this isn't for you, but I do think it's really good to reteach this lesson. So I'd love mm-hmm. to hear from you. How do we become aware around our own money stories? So to discover money stories, usually it's pretty evident. And if you filter through, let's say, the couple of stories that people have, and as I say them, it'll be apparent to you that that's true for you, right? So it could be that there's not enough money in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, money's for rich people or evil people, even more so. That you don't need to have money to be happy. Money takes away friendships or relationships. If you would have money, you would be outcasted. That's another thing that happens or, or is a common story that people have. And that money is the root of all evil which is, of course, a very popular, I think it's from religion that it's there, right? So all of those, I think greed is like one of the sins. sins uh, Seven deadly sins, yeah. Yeah, but money doesn't really mean greed, but that's kind of the correlation that people draw it to. So those are common stories that you have. And as I say, these narratives or these beliefs, something might pop in your head, like, oh, that that's something I definitely right. believe, right? Or another one is money is only uh, earned through hard work. So you need to work really, really hard and sacrifice a lot to make money which is also not very true. It's partially true for a level. And after that, money actually is very easy to make. That's one of those stories would probably be evident to you. And that's one way of just clearly going, okay, that's the story that I have. But it's more important to understand that the story is there and you don't need to heal a story to write a new story. So I'd love to hear what does the process of reframing your money story look like? And I would love to, you know, maybe use an example that you've worked through. Yeah, so... Let me first tell you the process and then I'll give you an example. So the process is, and there are many different ways of doing it, but at least this is the one that I feel is most important to recognize to get you started faster. So a lot of times we hear the story of you must heal your past to be able to create a future. And there is, you got to work on your past. You need to talk to a therapist for several years. You need to go through a healing journey and so forth. And yes, you need to understand where you are. And that's pretty much it. There is no version of healing that will completely heal a wound. Mm -hmm. It's a part of you. It's not going to, like even when, let's say you get a cut and it's a big cut, you heal. There's a little mark that is always left, right? I have this scar here on the nose. This is because I broke my nose when I was a child and I got a stitch here. I have a stitch here on the eyebrow because I cut my eyebrow once, right? So it's still there. You can't see it easily, but it's there. It's there here. It's there here, right? So you leave the mark if it's a big, hurt. And this is a big hurt that you have. So it's not going to heal completely. He's not going to be like, oh, there is no evidence of me being able to find it. But what does happen, like our body, our beliefs, our wirings are also always changing, mm-hmm. right? And so you can actively change your wiring as life progresses. Mm-hmm. So instead of always going, oh, you know what? My parents used to talk about how evil the money is. And so I believe money is evil and I can't do anything because I need to first heal this. You actually don't need to heal this. You can go, okay, so that's what is there. That's the scar that is on your nose. But you can always start building your life on top of it. 
right? So you can always go, what is the belief I want to have? Yes. What is the belief that I do desire? What is the truth? And can I find a matter of fact that that is actually true? So for example, when I wanted to prove that rich people are not evil, I spoke to a lot of rich people, right? And I was coincidentally meeting them because, because of my curiosity around money, I would go up and talk to them. And sometimes they were my bosses. And I was like, hey, can I get a chance to talk to you about this idea I have for the business? And they were like, sure. Not in the public setting, privately in their office. And they would be like, sure. And sometimes I had to wait like an hour to get that meeting. But I was like, I am interested enough that I will suffer through this hour so I can get a private meeting because I want to know if this is true or not, right? And I would go in, nicest people ever. Multi-multi-millionaires, probably billionaires already. I'm talking about my first boss, such a nice gentleman. Like he would give me like an hour, 30 minutes of his time and just sit down with me, listen to my idea, give feedback, tell me how to rethink about it. Give me like real pointers that he totally didn't have to. Like I was a junior guy that he had just hired a kid in his company, but he would take the time just because I walked in with intention, right? You know what I love about that, Ajit, is that you proved yourself wrong. Most people look to prove themselves right about their beliefs. Oh, all rich people are evil. Okay, I'm not going to question it. That's just what it is. And then you wonder why your bank account looks like what it looks like because you don't want to be evil, right? I love that you proved yourself wrong. Like you were looking for evidence to prove your beliefs wrong. Like, no, I don't want to sit there and believe that all rich people are evil. So you went out there and you did the opposite, right? Because most people would have that belief and they just shy away from rich people. But you leaned in and you were like, let me see if this is actually true. Yeah. So the question to really ask is, is this true? So any belief that comes up to us, we got to ask ourselves a question, is this true? Mm -hmm. And if you go, I don't know, then find evidence to prove it otherwise Mm -hmm. or prove it in either of the directions. And you will find evidence that both the situations are always true. I'm not saying there's no rich people who are not evil. I'm sure there is, Right. right? What I'm saying is that doesn't mean all rich people are evil. And when you put things like all and always, they're usually untrue statements, right? So money is always hard to make, is not a true statement. Sometimes it can be hard to make and sometimes it's very easy to make. So for example, another belief, which is very evident in me, was money is very hard to make. It requires hard work, dedication, long ass hours. That's how I burned my first career because I was running Mindvalley at the time. I was CEO of the company. We were doing $40 million a year. And at the same point in time, I was working like a dog all the time because I thought I must work hard for me to be deserving of the money that I make in this organization. I'm running the company. I was making so much money that my family and I had never imagined in my life that I would make. And I was making at 31. I was running a company at 31. It is insane in my mind what I was doing. And at the same point in time, I was working so hard that I drove my entire life crazy. I had no life really. Only to go and go, is that true? Is that really true? Is that the only way to make money? Or am I just creating the story for myself? And so I went out. I quit everything like an idiot. But at the same, it seemed like an idiot at the time. And nobody could believe that I was doing it. Because again, it was like, you have your dream job. (laughs) Like literally, you had trained, worked so hard to get to this place. Everybody is going, holy cow, Ajit is so successful. And you're saying, I quit. Mm -hmm. Like, how insane is that? But I did. And what it did for me is help me discover that you don't have to work hard to be successful and to be wealthy. You actually have to work in a season of your life really, really hard to build a skill, right? But once you have the skill, if you just keep going, oh, I need to double down on the skill further, further, you're actually not getting increased amount of return on that skill. 
it's actually no new return that you're getting on scale if you don't fully say, I built a skill, now I got to leverage the skill to actually build a career. And most of us have already grinded out to build that skill because nobody talks about this narrative of saying there's a point where you stop working so hard because you're basically sabotaging all potential growth opportunities because you're so focused on the hard work that you can't see what's actually possible. So when I quit that career, even if I loved it, I loved being, I loved the company, I loved my work there, I quit that career and then I was able to see, oh, I know this much and I can build as many companies as I want with the skill that I have. Because I've worked really hard there for like three years, four years. But at the same point in time, I didn't have to work for the next 40 years at the same intensity or even close to that intensity. That was my chance to say, I've worked really hard to build a skill. Now it's time for me to leverage the abilities that I've built to be able to build a career. And then when I start working with clients as a coach, I worked really hard as a coach for them because it would only be an hour, but I would go study after that. I'm like, okay, what do I need to know? What do I not know as a coach consultant to them? What do I not know as a consultant to them? What do I not know as a coach to them? So yes, the first year as a coach was really, really hard work because I was studying all the time. I was like, oh, but it didn't look like work, but it was hard work because I was studying all the time. <laughs> but at the same point of time, a year from then, I right now I can just show up. I don't have to prepare a word. I don't write a statement. I don't even research the person sometimes. Right. And I can just, for that matter, that's what some of our podcast drops are where I'm coaching someone. I know nothing about them when they come on the call. I do no intake form, nothing. I said, what's the topic you want to do? And we just go, what's your problem you want to solve? And then we go and we solve that problem in 45 minutes. And that's it. Yeah. Done. Right? But you get to that place only when you suspend that you need to stop working so hard because there's a point, an inflection point, where it's your intuition that drives it. Yes. I'm so happy that you said that because there are so many people who live with fear, shame, doubt, unworthiness. So here's my last question for you, okay? Do these feelings go away? And how do you learn to live with them if they show up, fear, shame, doubt, unworthiness, when they come up? You know, and how do you allow these feelings to still come up and not let it completely debilitate you? You know, so you don't feel stifled in your creativity and you still have that joy to keep creating that abundance? Like, how do you deal with those feelings? So I don't think there's any point where any feelings go away because if feelings would go away, we would become robots in a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. It's the way they show up and what they show up in and what's the intensity of those feelings and what we do with those feelings most importantly. So I think the feelings are always there. You feel, just to give you an example, so recently, I was just looking at my work that I put out as content in the world. So not my products, but my free stuff, as you would call it, right? So like, okay, my podcasts are pretty good. I think I show up really powerfully if I go on somebody else's podcast. My own podcast is pretty well recognized in the industry. People love it. I get comments on it all the time. My coaching sessions are extremely powerful. My clients tell me that. My students tell me that. So that's pretty good. So hour-long content, I crush it. Recent talks, I get standing ovations, I get great reviews, I'm rated as one of the top three or five speakers at the event. My speaking is doing pretty good. My YouTube videos, we have over 100,000 subscribers, my videos get thousands of views. My YouTube format's pretty good. So I mastered the art of a two-hour conversation, an hour conversation, an hour talk, a seven-minute video, mm. right? Or a 30-minute video. I've, I've mastered those. But my social media, like Instagram and TikTok and all these formats, they're all right. They don't do bad, but they don't also crush it, right? It's not like you would go, wow, I did social. is like he's crushing the real right. thing. I mean, some people would believe so. Yeah. But if you look from my point of view, I'm like, I'm 
might it's not right. it's not landing, right? Mm-hmm. It's not like super punchy. It's not really getting to it. Mm-hmm. It's not where I want it to be. All right. And with that, I go, okay, so I feel like not enough in that area. Suddenly I go, oh crap, I'm not feeling I'm good enough to be a good social media person. Uh, I don't know how to nail the 60 second, the 45 second, the 90 second content. Now that feeling is there. You just go, oh, that's what I'm feeling. Is it true? It's true. You're not crushing it. Now, what would the alternate reality look like? Like, let's say if I was to believe this is not true, if I was to believe that I am good enough, what would that object do? What would that reality do? Well, that reality will go, okay, if I feel I'm not crushing on social media, I should probably get trained on it. Right? That's what the reality of anybody that is not feeling good enough in a particular category would do. Mm-hmm. They'll go get a program, get a coach, get a teacher, get something, right? Like just basically get help to understand what is it that you're even saying you're not good enough at, mm-hmm. right? So literally yesterday, I had somebody come in who's a wonderful gentleman. His name is Skip. Follow him up, skipkellyfilms.com. Uh, and I got him to coach me for two hours mm-hmm. on saying, hey, how do I create content? Because I can't see what I can't see. Mm-hmm. I need a coach to guide me on how I can do this better. And he sat with me for two hours and he showed me that it's not that I'm not good enough as a presenter for social, but I haven't taken the time to really understand how to take my big message that I take 10 minutes to explain or three minutes to explain and make it punchy for 45 seconds. Mm -hmm. So he helped me see how to make it punchy for 45 seconds. All that he did for two hours was to say, tell me something, let's make it punchy. Tell me something, let's make it punchy. Let's tell me something, make it punchy. And as we made it punchy, it became clear to me, oh, it's not that, I'm not even telling a different story. It's the same story in 45 seconds. It's the same story in 90 seconds. So he's just helping me now understand how to take that belief and kind of work with that belief to create a new belief around it. But that's all training. So my invitation is if at any point you go, oh, I don't feel good enough for money or I feel like I can't make enough money or I don't want to work hard for money or all of that, is get coached, get trained, get somebody to help you out. And it's very easy to get started. Even if you can't afford a coach, it's very easy. Find somebody you trust, somebody who will be honest with you, somebody that will respect you and not degrade you just because of your mindset or your feelings or your beliefs, somebody that is willing to listen so you can say out loud, like you say, what you believe. And then you can go, oh, okay, that's what I believe. Now let's re-engineer that, right? Let, now I can work on it because until now, until you say it out loud or write it out loud, you don't know what you believe. You're just telling a story in your mind and you're stuck in that story. And if you say it, write it, somehow communicate with someone in dialogue with someone, now you really know what's happening. And once you know what's happening, it's so much easier to work around it because it's real now. You're like, oh, fuck, this is what we're working with. Okay, let's work with it. So the answer is when you're feeling that way, instead of getting stuck in it, you can actually take that, go with it and be like, well, what's really going on? And what I hear consistently that you have done throughout, you know, especially these past, you know, decade is when you feel oh, I'm not good enough or I'm not this. Instead of stewing in it, it's like, okay, let me get help. Who can help me with X, Y, Z? And you get it. And I'm sure you're going to kill it and crush it on social media. (laughs) We'll see. We'll see. We got the edits for the first round. Looks pretty good. Better than what we've posted before. We'll see. But I think that's the key to, to really remembering about money is money is also, like any other skill, is something that you build. You're not stuck with it. It's not your default. You're not always going to be there. It's just a place where you are at right now. And you're at that place and like how you built anything in your life. 
you can build as much money. And I think everybody can have as much money. It's just till the time you're willing to go, okay, let me reprogram this stuff, right? There's certain laws, kind of laws for loosely saying it, that one must follow to understand how money flows. There is certain energy to money that one must understand and move towards to be able to go, okay, that's the energy of money. Where is it leading me towards? For example, there's, there's certain things that I just want to say it out to the people that are listening to this, this conversation so they have some pointers to think about post our conversation. Is like, for example, money likes directedness. Like you can't have, I would like to make XYZ money. You can't be lukewarm about it because like a goal, money likes to be direct. Tell me exactly what you want, mm-hmm. right? And then you work towards it because of the certainty of outcome that you want. There's a point in my life about five years ago, I set myself up to say, I will be a $100 million man, right? I will build a company that's worth $100 million, right? Arbitrary goal, there's no really logic to it of why I said $100 million. It was just a number that I was like, that sounds fascinating. I'll love to chase it, right? It was mostly also created because I was very comfortable in life. Like I didn't need the money, Right. And when you don't need the money, which may be a case with, because I know it's a lot of case with a lot of coaches, because when I speak to them personally, privately, it very often comes up as like, um, yeah, I want to make money and I'm broke, but I'm not because I actually have all these other things that pay me money. And so it's not like I'm struggling to put food on the table. You're not, right? And you tell that story when you have to tell the story. When, when I really get you to go, okay, write down all the income streams that you have. They're like, yeah, I have this investment I made. Because you're like 50 or something or 40 or something. You made investments. You have a property somewhere. You have uh, some alternative ways of getting income. You might be a trust fund that was paying you. It may be because you were, you were married to someone and you get alimony from it. There's so many ways that people actually end up making money when they list out every category that they make money in. That very often you're just very comfortable. And that was my case. None of the above reasons. I just had built wealth over time that... I could be like, I could retire and I'll be fine for at least next 20 years. So I didn't need to make money. And so I said, if I don't have the fire to make money, why would I make money? Mm-hmm. Right? So I need something to chase. So it's not for creating pain in my life or greed in my life. It was to give my energy a direction. Because if I don't give it a direction, then it's all over the place and then it's not going to go anywhere. Right? And everybody has a different number. 100 million may seem insane to some people. To some people, it may seem like it's nothing. And that's fine. Pick yours. And if it's not a number, it may be an experience that you chase. It's like, I will have a one-month holiday in this seven-star hotel in Honolulu. Yes. Whatever the heck it is, whatever that fires you up. I'm going to put on an event with a thousand people, right? That requires investment. You need to spend a million dollars to put a thousand people into a room. So you need to generate a million dollars to put a thousand people in the room. So maybe that's your intention, whatever it is. But something that you go, it will really fire me up and I'm willing to work for 10 years to get this chase, right? So for me, it was $100 million at the time. And it still is. And I actually don't care if I get to $100 million or not. The point is, what I'm becoming to become that person mm-hmm. is what's more exciting. Because now I can enjoy the journey. I have this chase that I talk about once in a while. But in my subconscious... It's always going, oh, you need to up-level your business skills. You need to up-level your partnership skills. You need to up-level your relationship skills. You need to up-level how you live your life. You need to be healthier as a person. Like it needs to up-level a lot for me to get to 100 million, right? Yes. Like for anyone, (laughs) not just for me. Like to be a $100 million person, you need to have insane amount of energy because you need to be able to be in a conversation or drop off a hat, especially if you're a public figure, which I'm lukewarm at, right? So I'm kind of a public figure, right? So it's like, okay, 
you got to have an insane amount of energy. I can't preach coaching and not be energetic on stage. That's just not possible, right? So you have to be someone or become someone to get to that chase. And that drives action, but you need that directedness. Money needs you to tell it, where do you want it to flow? You want it for a thousand person event? You want it because you want to give it away to charity? You want to make it for your own wealth because you want the biggest house on the block? because you finally want to buy that house for your parents or for your kids, whatever the heck it was or whatever the heck it is, you need to direct it. That's the rule number one. And that's where most of us fail. We don't have a 10-year vision of what money we are going to make. And if you don't tell that to money, money doesn't know that it needs to flow in that direction. And it will change based on your gratification level in that moment. Oh, a sale came up and I really like that dress, right? And you go buy that dress. And sure, you may feel gratified with it, but your money just got lost because your money energy went, oh, maybe that's what gives this person a joy and not that, mm-hmm. right? So they're going to give you more of that. But then that's not a setup for a $100 million person, right? Or if you were looking for true abundance and a lot of wealth for yourself and your family and for your generations to come, which is possible only because you change something, that's what it becomes, right? So you need to be directed. Secondly, it's very important for you to understand that everything that you do right now for money is going to change the story of generations that may come. If in the past, nobody was wealthy in your family or didn't create wealth, you would not have a story to lean on. And if you don't have a story to lean on, there is no way that your coming generations will feel that they are deserving of wealth, Mm -hmm. that they deserve money, right? That's why a lot of the times people who do grow up in poor neighborhoods end up in poor neighborhoods, majority of them. It's yes, lack of education, resources, access, all of that. But it's also because there is no example. There is nobody that they can say, you know what, that person came from our neighborhood and he was able to do it or she was able to do it. You can too. The moment you become that person in your family, you can change the story of your family for years to come because they have an example to look up to, to go, you know, your granduncle, your uncle, was this person, he did this, she did that. Now, auntie was doing this and she broke the rules like this Mm -hmm. and she became this. And so the generations that come have that story to lean on. And when they have that story to lean on, they go, it can happen for me. Even if they're not directly related to you, it could be indirect, Mm -hmm. right? So when you create wealth, you're not creating for you. You're creating for generations. And if you believe in my mindset, which is I take everybody along. I don't care. If you're my friend, I don't care. I want to help out right? Even if you're you're my close friend, you're my far away, if I can help, I want to help, right? And I want to see what I can do. I'm not going to do anything unethical or illegal, but till the time it is within the reins and you provide value, I'm going to do everything I can do to support. So you're not only making money for yourself. When I become a $100 million man, I will have to make several millionaires too. Yes. Right? That's true. Yes. That's true. And yeah. it's already true for me. Yeah. Like the belts that I built a lot of my very good friends have become really wealthy because I became wealthy yeah. and because I was the one who was spearheading the direction that we must go next, mm. right? Because if I am generating an average 20, 30, 40 million dollars a year in revenue churn, it's not just it's coming to my bank account. That's not what happens. Students make money. My friends make money. My colleagues make money. My employees make money. Everybody makes money when I make more money. So I'm not breaking the mold for me only. I'm breaking the mold for thousands of people. Yes. Like our students report in the first three weeks, I made $10,000. 
And our programs are not $10,000. Right. They pay a fraction of that. And in my first five weeks, I got my first client. The client is for $15,000. I was just speaking to one of our coaches. They said, my average ticket size was $3,000 when I joined your program. My average ticket size is $15,000 now in this program after doing the program with you. So it's, I'm not just, I, these are people that I don't even, they're not my friends. They're my students, right? But that happens when you break the mold Lots of people break the mold. And especially if you look different, like I look different, I sound different. I'm from India. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people go, oh crap, that guy. That's not even like, it's not the mainstream. Like I remember the story and I've told this many times uh, in different places. But when I first entered the coaching space, there was a mastermind group I was invited into because they thought I was, you know, different or whatever. <laughs> or maybe for diversity card, I have no idea why I was invited. <laughs> considering what happened next. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I go into this group and we are talking and it's basically not to say white people are bad, but there was a group of <laughs> white male and females in the, in the room because that's what majority of the yeah. industry was at the time, right? So I'm in the group and everybody's sharing their vision, you know, like how you start a mastermind, giving an uh, introduction. And I was sharing my vision of Evercoach there. Like, oh, this is what I want to build. I want to build a platform which doesn't only talk about how to make more money, but actually talk about real skills of coaching. Mm -hmm. Like really actually doing the work and building something that's long-term, not in the opportunity market, which is how coaching was treated at the time. And, and so there's this, at the time, very successful white male person who looked at me and scoffed and then... <laughs> You are a brown man in a coaching industry. You'll never be successful. The only way you could be successful is if you were a 40-year-old white lady. Wait, did he really say that? Yeah, to my face. In the group. Like, it wasn't even like he was saying it privately. I'm, so, I'm, I'm, I'm very angry for you. Like, yeah. I just want to let you know and I'm actually like, angry Ouch. for you. Yeah, that's... And I was like, at that time, I was maybe 33 years old. So I was also young. Like, now I'm a little bit, I have a little bit more, you know, what do you say? Tough skin or rhino thicker skin. skin. You have a thicker, thicker skin. skin. Thicker, yeah. thicker skin. Yeah. Uh, at that time, it was just my first rodeo on full entrepreneurship. Yeah. I had like quit everything and I was doing this. I was like, what? Who says that? I was first like, who says that? Right? Like to anyone. Forget about telling a brown person or not a brown person. Like who says that period? To another person. Like why would you kill somebody's dream like that? Or try to kill somebody's dream like that? And then, uh, I, and I was like, okay, whatever. Right? But that also gave me, while it was offensive and it is offensive at many levels, it also gave me a sign of why I had to do it. I had to make it work. Is because that wasn't fair for that person to say that. And that wasn't fair if that was true. Because maybe it was. Maybe all they were doing is telling me the truth. And that may be okay from one perspective. But at the same point, I was like, if that is the truth, I don't want that to be the truth of the world. That's just not right, right? And secondly... I don't believe that should be a person and people like that should ha happen in the industry and should exist in the industry. Thankfully, the person's gone from the industry because they were clearly seeking opportunity. So I've never heard their name or seen them anywhere in a long while. But it would be the, fun to see them though. <laughs> it would yeah, be fun to and see I them. I would probably not even bring it up to them. I'll be like, <laughs> fine, it's your story. It's mm -hmm. nothing to do with it unless they bring up the conversation. But other than that, the whole point of like that's that's important to note these nuances. And I know it sounds really hurtful. And like I said, I met really good white people too. And a lot of the millionaires that I spoke to were white people who were really kind, generous with their time and males and females who were very helpful to me in this journey. So in no way am I saying that's the truth of white people. But that was, at that time, it hit hard because I was the only brown person in the room. And he commented on, you need to be a 40-year-old white lady as a white man himself. And I was like, that's just wrong at so many levels. To white women, it's wrong. 
to white males, it's wrong. To a brown person, it's wrong. To a black person, it's wrong. To anybody anywhere else in the world, is wrong. So like, it's just wrong at so many levels that I just don't think it's it's something that I want to accept as the truth uh, because I think humanity is greater than that anyway. So, so that is something that's also very important to understand is when you become wealthy, you set examples for people you don't even know, mm-hmm. right? So there's so many people that now would send us messages on Instagram and on emails and so forth that come from Latin America, that come from India, that come from Malaysia, from Singapore. If you come to one of our, literally this morning, I was doing one of our certification calls and I was surprised the number of countries we represent mm-hmm. in any given certification. It's 50 to 80 countries. It's insane. We present a big majority of the world. 80 might be a little stretch, but maybe definitely 50 to 60 countries. A lot of Europe, a lot of Australia, a lot of Asia, some parts of Africa, not so much in Africa, a lot of South America, and definitely a lot of North America. Very represented. And that's probably because until we showed up as ever coach, or maybe other people as well contributed to it, I can only speak for myself. But until we showed up as ever coach, nobody else represented, saying that it's not a monopoly. This is the work everybody needs to know, do for society to evolve. So when you become wealthy, it's not only for you. A lot of times you're actually becoming wealthy for a lot of people that you will not even know until years later how you contributed to their growth, their success, their understanding of the world. So you got to do it for them, right? So a lot of these beliefs about money that we hold on to need to be understood differently. Money is about contribution. Money is about directedness. So you want to be directional. And you want to think about contribution of money, not the story about evil of money and all of that. Money's contribution is far greater than the evilness that it may sometimes represent or some people may use it for evil. Uh, But the contribution is far greater than that. So if you're any concerned about society, you have to become wealthy to be contributing to society. And then lastly, the last thing that I want to kind of leave about money is money is a lot about improving or increasing what we call a financial thermostat. Mm -hmm. And financial thermostat is this concept where you have a certain amount of money that you think you can make and you kind of stop there. And that usually is the highest amount of money you ever made. Or if I ask you a question, hey, if I ask you how much money can you make in the next 30 days, whatever number pops in your mind, that's probably your thermostat. Wow. Right? Because that's where you are like, oh, that's how much I can make. And what usually that means is anytime you're about to hit that thermostat or you hit the thermostat, you're going to find ways to spend it all because it's too much for you. It's too much for your energy. And the only way to move your thermostat, not the only way, but at least the most powerful way that I've found to move your thermostat is to give a lot, to give money, right? And to do acts of giving money. You don't have to spend thousands of dollars on this. It could be simple things like, I'm going to buy somebody lunch that is just sitting next to me or I'm going to buy the coffee for the person behind me or I'm going to give a donation when I'm not like thinking about it or not for a tax deduction. I'm going to give without expectation to receive anything, Mm -hmm. even if it's not money. And when you give, 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 give a lot with that gratitude, with that understanding that I'm just giving, not with the expectation to take or get a return, your ability to give increases their ability to receive. Mm -hmm. And because your ability to receive unconsciously starts to move, you also receive but without actually wanting to give something back, which is a default that we do. If I say, hey, Vasavi, you're looking really good today. Thanks. 
thanks, thanks. is a great response. Yeah. That's it, right? <laughs> or I know. That's receiving. I know. No. Yeah. But yeah, thank yeah. you, yes. Thank yeah, you. but that's true receiving. Yeah. But a lot of people will go, and oh yeah, and you're wearing great mm-hmm. shoes, right? Yep. Uh, something like that. You would just receive, you will re- reciprocate immediately because you feel uncomfortable receiving. So the minor acts of giving and receiving naturally move your thermostat up. Mm-hmm. It's just one of the easy ways you can do it on a daily basis. It doesn't need you to do some big you know, ayahuasca journey or something no. like that. You don't need anything no. like that. And you will find that your thermostat keeps going up and you start making more money and more and more money and more and more money pretty much in a matter of coming two to three months. So it doesn't even take a very long time. You'll see a thermostat keeps going up very easily, very quickly. We did this experiment in one of our groups where we gave them a meditation to kind of promote the idea of giving and receiving. And we told them to go do that. The meditation incorporated a couple more things in there. But the response that we got after 14 days of trying that on was that a lot of individuals started getting more contracts. Mm -hmm. Like a lot more clients started to give them money back. Or sometimes they would get their tax refund, even if it's not scheduled at the time. Or they would get somebody who hasn't paid the money for a hot minute, return the money, uh, pay with interest, which they were not expecting. We had a person who was waiting on a contract for like six months and they finally came through and it was a $30,000 contract. So things like that organically happen because your thermostat is moving up and you just don't know why it's happening. And then you suddenly go, holy shit, this is happening all the time for me. There's a lady in our program, a fantastic person, and she wanted to buy a house. And she had the deposit, but she didn't have a guarantor or guarantee or whatever. And because she was doing this exercise, it happened to be that she was like really interested in this is like the dream house. She's like, I have the money. I don't have a guarantor. And one just acquaintance said, don't worry, I'll be a guarantor. And he said, for that matter, my wife will also be. And the wife also joined in as a guarantor and she got the house, which is her dream house. Wow. Right? So these are like things that you're like, it doesn't make any sense for somebody to offer that because it's like a risky thing to offer. But People do that all the time. So these are one of those things that you will just find once you give and receive unconditionally that your thermostat is going to go up. And as your thermostat goes up, you'll start making more money. So those are some of the things that you need to understand. There are some more things that one must uh, kind of get an idea of mm-hmm. to fully move into money. But I think this is enough juice for it's this conscious. episode. Yeah. Yes. Beautifully said. Thank you, Ajit. Thank you. That was just a little bit about how you could turn your money mindset around. How can you switch your energy of money? But let's be really honest. There's a lot more to go deeper into this. There's a lot more to cover. There's so many other elements that I couldn't have covered in this conversation. And coincidentally, as this podcast is released, in the next few days, I'm doing a one-day workshop called The Energy of Money, where I cover the energy of money, the psychology of money, and then also the practical approach to creating more money in your life. There's a lot of money that can be created for all of us. There's enough abundance in this universe for all of us to be wealthy, to be rich. And that is why I want to invite you to this very special one-day online seminar. You can attend the seminar simply by joining and becoming a member of Evercoach Membership. You see, while you join Evercoach Membership, you will get an exclusive invite to attend this five-hour live workshop with me directly. And apart from that, you also get access to amazing quests that will upgrade your coaching abilities and help you build the coaching business of your dreams. Evercoach membership comes with a new quest every single quarter. Every three months, we introduce you to a whole different program, a whole different approach to getting and becoming a better coach. 
And now we are also introducing live intensives. These are online intensives where for an entire day, you will be taking a deep dive in a very specific topic that will help you become a better coach, create more money, create more impact in the world, and help you realize your potential. This is our first live intensive of the year, which I'm inviting you to, which is called Energy of Money. If you enjoyed this episode, you will absolutely love what we're going to do in this five-hour live online event. To join our coach membership, find a special link in the show notes of this podcast episode. And I'll see you inside the Evercoach membership on the live intensive where we'll talk about the energy of money. Oh,